Hello, and welcome to the R Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, your host, as we get into part two of the interview that I did with Julianne Romanello. The previous episode, part one, left off with us talking about kind of some philosophical concepts and trends in society, and I had brought up things about kind of the dim age theory, the shifting from the material into the more mystical, and I tried applying some of the frameworks that she had talked about earlier in the interview about this aspect of having man, society, nature and the divine and how when you get rid of the divine, that impulse and that desire, that void is filled with one of those other categories. And so I tried to apply that a little more and I will just pick up where I left off with the end of my comments. You're definitely going to have to give me those authors' names specifically after we get done and I have a lot of reading to do. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it once you start to break down these symbols and think of you know these different configurations of politics of society of you know our account of what health is any of these things our account of what social justice is you know once you start to dig into the symbolism of it it is fascinating i mean it it's just you could keep going and going, you know, trying to unpack, like, how does this account of, you know, what health is, like, how does this change all of our uh, prior notions of, of what God is, of what society should be, you know, of what the physical, of the environmental world is, like, they all affect each other. And, Um, you know, once, you know, once you set one of those up as a, as a sort of deity, then yeah, the definite, like how we understand all of the others is going to be, it's going to be morphed as well. You know, you could sort of think of it as like picking up a a piece of fabric. You know, if you pick up one piece, it's going to draw the others with it. And yes, we have all of these things going on at once. So, and, you know, the thing is that they're contradictory, (laughs) you know, (laughs) so you can't have, you can't have society be set up as, as, you know, this apex of reality as this, like, as the divine ground of, reality. You can't argue that as this at the same time that you're like, you know, you're saying that human beings have destroyed the planet and, you know, we're the, you know, the evil force of death and destruction to our own natural world. You know, I mean, if you're, if you're just looking at sort of, you know, um, you know, relations of like uh, consumer behavior or something, or you're like really tracking uh, some cause, uh, causal relationship between like our behavior and the environment, then, you know, there are certain, there are many instances where we could say, yeah, well, human beings have done some big, some major damage here. So I'm, I'm not arguing against that, you know, uh, 
for, and I'm not arguing really against the idea that there is a some kind of a common good. There's some good for, you know, that, you know, when society is flourishing, then each of its individual members are flourishing. I believe, I believe that that is true. You know, we all do better when each of us individually does better when society is better. So, so just to be clear, I'm not, you know, picking on those, but when you, when you get into setting up a new system of, of faith and of ranking these primordial experiences, God, man, world, society. Uh, You know, you can't, you still have to be like reasonable. You still have to follow the rules of logic (laughs) and you have to, Mm. (laughs) you have to test your claims by experience and, you know, experience and logic and, you know, looking to the records of history. Like we have, we are, have many tools that we can use to check our claims and I've like when you look at what's going on today with these different movements like say setting up the earth as as the god and then also setting up society as the god and using this narrative of climate change at the same time you find that you know you run you run into these huge contradictions and if you ask someone to explain it you know well why is the earth why should we be concerned about protecting the earth? If we're so bad uh, and the earth is so good, you know, why, what's our real relationship with it? Like, can you give me an explanation of why I should be, uh, uh, why I should be deeply concerned about its, you know, its health? Um, These new religions, they can't, even take up that question you know they, they're going to actually prohibit that question they're going to deflect and you know Vogelin this is a cool thing about Eric Vogelin he said you know one way that we can uh, you know one way that we can fight disorder spiritual disorder is by uh, illuminating the symptoms of it by just giving uh you know, a name to some of the symptoms and saying this is what's happening. And so he he was very concerned with uh, the prohibition of questions. And he really goes after Marx. He calls Marx an intellectual swindler. <laughs> and I always laugh when I read that part in Vogelin. He was an intellectual swindler. Um, he also, Vogelin also says, like, I, I was a Marxist for about six months in you know, in my, you know, undergraduate studies. <laughs> and he said, and then I read some economics and that cured me of that. <laughs> <laughs> so he's kind of, he's a funny character too. But, uh, but he, but Vogelin looks at like this prohibition of questions and he says, you know, there are certain things that you could ask a Marxist and they're just not going to, uh, they're not going to allow those they're not going to entertain those questions. They're going to come up with a way out of it. And, you know, Marx, for Vogelin, Marx wasn't as bad as Hegel. Hegel was really Vogelin's nemesis. Hmm. And, and he said, well, you know, this, the 
systematic nature of of Hegel's work. You know, Hegel purported to, you know, be able to explain everything, you know? <laughs> I mean, and that goes against our experience, you know, a universal experience. I don't think there's a human being on the face of this earth that that this doesn't apply to. Like, we all... Uh, we understand that we can't know everything, <laughs> you know. <Yes. laughs> um, but Hegel, like, he tries to explain all of it, you know, and he and he doesn't. He's like he sort of offers his system as a, you know, as the end of philosophy. Like, okay, now everything has been explained, and that that prohibition of questions is that's a sign of spiritual disorder because it goes against the fact that you know human beings really do know at a deep level that we cannot explain everything and so you know to bring it back into the present i think that this um the shift away from materialism and into this mystical realm of singularity where we all like up upload our minds to the cloud <laughs> hmm. and we can live an infinite number of, of experiences. We can have any experience we can, you know, um, we are not limited by space and time. I think that that's one thing that they're trying, that these real transhumanists like are, are aspiring to, they want to conquer space and time. And they want to know everything. And that's, you know, that's one way that you can, you can see that the, the narrative is like, okay, well, what are they chasing? They're chasing uh, omniscience and really sort of like omnipresence. Well, we know human beings do know, like when we have experiences of our finite nature. So these aspirations toward infinity, toward eternity, toward, um, you know, the singularity, those are, they don't accord with, with our basic experience. They don't accord with reason. And if you ask a a question to one of these like transhumanist philosophers, um, I, I shouldn't call them philosophers, these transhumanists. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're not going to be able to, they're going to sort of just deflect the question. They're not going to take it on. And that right there it shows you that this is a, it is a religious symbolism. You know, and they're going to link it with the climate crisis, you know. I mean, it's a, like I say, some of that's utilitarian. I mean, Klaus Schwab, um, you know, I think, he needs his global crisis for global governance. Um, and that might be a little bit different than, you know, some of the transhumanists who have an idea of, they want to save the climate and, you know, uh, but why, if you're going to move into this um, disembodied, you know, uh, singularity, like why do you care about the planet? about the planet, but they're not going to be able to answer that question. So 
anyway, yeah, yeah. It, it's really wild, and it does it touches everything. I mean, if you're gonna say, oh yeah, society is so great, it's the best thing. It's so important. Um, how can you say that and then also demonize human beings for using natural resources? You know, I mean that it's, but that's too commonsensical for for <laughs> the people we're dealing with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they want emotions and narrative and all these yes. kinds of things, not logic and reason and data and facts. <laughs> right, and it's because of the infinite nature of these of emotions and experiences. So when you look at like like reforms to our educational systems and this is like um the it's the p20 pipeline like preschool all the way up to phd um so you see this i guarantee you if you look at your public uh, schools website or whatever um you're gonna find that they're talking about experiences if you look at a university website i mean what happened to my university it's happening all over maybe not in the same brutal way, but every university is shifting to this model. And it comes from the American Council on Education and it filters down and it's playbook. It's it's the same thing everywhere. Uh, but so if you open up a you know a mission plan or um you know the strategic mission of a university or you look at their admissions front page why you should go here. It's all going to talk about experiences, and that's because you can have an infinite number of experiences, especially if you, you know, have if you live in the cloud, if you are augmenting reality and <laughs> you're disembodied, and you know, like you're living through your VR goggles or your Neuralink chip. <laughs> <laughs> It, it never goes away. So that's, and then it ties back to the idea of sustainable development. What is that? It's, well, we want, you know, um, an infinite, uh, you know, some, some kind of source of infinite economic growth without using um, our, without using up our finite resources. Well, how do you do that? Well, you move everything into the virtual world and you enjoy things there and you enjoy them infinitely and you pay, then you pay for them infinitely. That's, <laughs> a, that's sustainable economic growth. It is to disembody yourself, to not use these, not use up the finite resources of the world and you move into this, this semi-divine a state of living in, you know, in a world that seems uh, like it is unfettered by like space and time. <laughs> now, really, it's all fake. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but they but they don't think that. You know, they think it's real. <laughs> well, and we're kind of in that in between zone right now, where we're not necessarily. Uh, outside of this plan and heading in this direction, but we're definitely not all uploaded to the cloud quite yet. And you mentioned uh, uh, naming things. And I I've talked before about this interesting aspect of 
the magical, so to say, qualities of language and words and the idea of magic as using something that is conceptual, um, I guess, uh, what's a good word for that? Um, something that's not material, that's immaterial, mm-hmm. um, but that it still changes the material world. And so yeah. if you can use an immaterial thing to change the material world, then in a sense, that is performing magic. And we're seeing this done with words and with language. And you mentioned the P20 pipeline. I've heard you talk about cradle to career. Uh, a lot of these catchphrases and different words, they are there is symbolism behind them, like you've mentioned before about symbolism. Um, but also on the flip side, we can have power uh, if we can name these things, like you had mentioned about uh, basically like calling out all of these things and that there is a power in that to resist them. Um, There is power in being able to name and identify something. And I feel like if we can identify some of these words, these catchphrases, these things that are being presented to us as you know, glorious and wonderful and want to be great for the kids. Um, if we can see those for what they truly are, truly name them, to name in the sense of reputation and identity, if we can do that, then we can gain some power. Um, could you identify some more of those kind of words and catchphrases that are being used? Maybe the um, the symbolism of a pipeline and humans being commodities and that type of thing? Yeah, I mean, there's so many, and I need to, I, you know, I had a, a post on Facebook where I just list, uh, it's well over a hundred of these buzzwords, <laughs> you know? Wow. Yeah, I've got to find it. I, I saved it. I pressed the save button, but I'll have to look it up. Um, there are so many of these, and, you know, they, they, I think... They're designed to be deceptive. They're based on on marketing studies, like funded by the deep pockets of government and philanthropists. Um, there's a lot of research and and um, and cons- and conspiracy that's gone, that's gone into coming up with these certain phrases. But uh, so people, I I think your point is. It's so important. We have to be able to help people identify what these buzzwords are, and we have to be able to clarify their actual meaning. So, um, you know, like with the P20 pipeline, and, and, you know, and we have to be able to unpack the symbolism behind them. And that's why you have, I think that you need to have at least some kind of training of some kind of experience with the liberal arts. Now, do, you know, where do you, do you need to have this in a university? Well, not anymore. You're going to have to find that someplace else because whatever you get at the university is going to be lousy. <laughs> it's going to be <laughs> terrible quality. Um, but you do need to have some kind of, you know, background in in literature, and that could be a background you just reading for pleasure, you know, like throughout your life, um, or thinking deeply about things. It doesn't have to be reading. It could be the visual arts. It could be other kinds of exploration of history and and 
anthropology and all these things. So we need to, I mean, we need to be well-rounded in our studies to sort of, um, to enrich our own experience so that we can draw on many sources of insight for our interpretation of like the symbolic meaning of these things. Um, so there's, I, I said a lot there. Uh, so yeah, we need to, I guess I would say, number one, we need to identify some of these buzzwords. Number two, those of us who have been studying these and looking at them, researching them, we need to help others to understand their true intent and meaning. And then three, we need to be able to understand the symbolism behind some of those. So, so yeah, the P20 pipeline, that is anyone who has spent time in education or education research is going to recognize that phrase. And, you know, you talk about a pipe, what I heard in Tulsa was, you know, lots of talk about the pipeline to the workforce. And when, you know, when you might ask, well, what's in the pipeline? <laughs> and those are our precious young people. You know, those are preschoolers up until, you know, human beings who are studying for graduate studies, or now they're calling them post-secondary studies. Like the pipeline to the workforce is a pipeline that transports human beings as if human beings were an inanimate object, as if, you know, the individuals who would go through that pipeline have to have someone else totally directing the process. Um, and, you know, to me, I, I, you know, I'm a mom <laughs> and, and I was a, a teacher and I love my kids and I love my students, you know, and I thought you just don't talk about people this way because we're talking, <laughs> we're talking about people and they're not crude oil. They're not diluent. They're not things like that. I mean, these are human beings with a mind and a soul and a body and uh, they, they have their own life. So they need to be able to direct it and, you know, of course, the crude oil doesn't decide where it's going. Someone else does. So when you see, you know, pipelines and pathways, when you see those terms, we need to, uh, we need to be, um, to use a woke term, we need to be triggered <laughs> and say, uh-oh, <laughs> why are we talking about pipelines and pathways? Because what those imply is, you know, a fixed route from one place to another. And, you know, you, the, the person moving along the pipeline or the pathway, they have not chosen, you know, the direction of that pathway. They've not chosen to be on it. Like they're, they're placed there by someone else. And maybe it's Bill Gates, maybe it's their parents, maybe whatever. But those terms, because they are, you know, these are standard industry-wide terms. I mean, it comes through, these terms are promoted through the big marketing and consulting firms, like the global firms, like McKinsey and Deloitte. 
Uh, and it's to get everyone thinking the same way, you know, and using the same language. And, and it's to constrict our reality. Because if you, if you look at, say, corporate white papers or uh, strategic plans on a, on a university website or your local philanthropist, if you look at their uh, mission statement, you're going to see the same terms repeated over and over again. And we should be able to look at those and say, oh, this is a problem. It, if, if those words are there, it means that the people who are in charge of that institution or that program, they are wittingly or not, <laughs> they're adopting someone else's plan and understanding of, you know, the goals that are to be pursued, you know, and so you don't really want to be involved with that organization because they're taking marching orders from someone else, you know, and that process can be, it can be very diffuse, um, but if you have a, if you have an organization using those, I would say watch out because what those mean you know, you, if you see the word like a transformational experience, I mean, that word that it's an ordinary word, right? <laughs> I mean, that's not, it shouldn't be a trigger word. But, you know, I've looked at these advertisements and white papers and stuff so many times that you realize, oh, this is one of their important words. And what does it mean? It means moving everything to, uh, to a digital format. You know, it means embracing the fourth industrial revolution and its goals. So people should look at that. They should see that word. They should think, uh-oh, this is what it means. It means we're really um, redoing things. We're headed toward virtual reality. And then, you know, you can start to unpack the symptoms. <clears throat> the symbolism and, you know, really trans. I mean, that is, it's an important word nowadays. We're talking about transhumanism, transsexuality, transformation. We're losing the idea of forms. Uh, so there are many of those community engagement, high impact, you know, uh, you see like bold, visionary, reinventing, reimagining, all these kinds of sustainable economic growth um, that the list just goes on and on <laughs> but if we can if we can call it out then that's empowering to individuals and to the communities that they're a part of to do what it's empowering them to help them understand for themselves what's going on now not everybody has enough time to do the research on this stuff. And that's, I think, by design. So those of us who have done the research, we need to, I think, try our best to disseminate it so that other people have the information that they need to make it a choice for themselves, you know? And that's what I think education is, to go back to Plato. You know, education should not be someone else giving you an idea of how you ought to live your life. You know, it shouldn't be someone else giving you an answer. But 
rather education is something that it's a turning around. It's a conversion toward reality. And, you know, what I tried to do as a teacher, what I hope I do as a parent, um, as a sort of social media activist, truth activist, whatever, I don't like that word. Um, hmm. I haven't thought of a better one, you know, is you just, you, you have to help, you have to recognize that other people have the capacity and the obligation and the privilege of, of using their own reason to make the most important decisions about their life. So if we can help others to understand what this stuff means, you know, then we're acting as a midwife or just an aid, a guide uh, for them to undergo that process of conversion. And it's under their direction. It's not under ours. Um, But that conversion toward the truth of things. Oh, yeah, that... So when my when I hear about a you know a, an equitable solution you know this is what they're talking about they're talking about making all outcomes equal and they're talking about measuring outcomes you know that's empowering for people to know that so anyway <laughs> yeah yeah, and uh, you mentioned about how controlling language, they are basically controlling the thoughts and ideas that people have by limiting and narrowing language. Uh, yeah. Definitely goes right in line with Newspeak from 1984. Yes. Uh, creating a language that actually gets smaller over time. Yes. Um, but also Plato. You went back to Plato. Of course, that was kind of one of his main points is that if you limit the language, the ideas, the concepts that people are exposed to, then you control what people will think, because if they've never heard of it before, then they probably won't think about it. And so, yeah, yes. it, it all it all goes back to Plato. You mentioned forms, <laughs> too. And yeah. I hadn't thought about forms in this context. But when you think of like the allegory of the cave and you have people seeing these shadows on the wall and this whole idea of a world of forms and then the perfect um the perfect reality that's the perfect truth, the ideal form versus the forms that we see. Um, And so if you're looking at the shadows on the wall, they are shadows of a real thing way back behind you. That's, that's reality. That's truth. That's what we are ideally trying to strive for. Um, But it's like the people sitting and looking at the shadows, it's like they realize that these are shadows But instead of turning around and walking out of the cave, they want to generate something, create something that would give this shadow so that they are the ones that are determining what is true, what is reality, what is the ideal form, instead of just looking at what it is. Um, It's kind of strange. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and it's the idea of like sort of creating the conditions, you know, for a game because, you know, the the prisoners are the ones Socrates says, like, let's imagine that they start calling out names and, and recognizing patterns and repeating things. And they take great like pride in being able to predict which, which shadow is going to, you know, come across their view next, you know? Um, 
Yeah. You know, the people who are carrying these objects that are casting the shadows, you know, those are, those are like man-made objects, actually. You know, uh, they, you know, their, their focus is on creating these conditions for a game, the prisoner's game, <laughs> you know? And you think, well, why aren't they doing something else? Why aren't they, I, I don't know, why are they carrying a vase across? Uh, you know, who are they serving? Why aren't they looking out, you know, to get out of the cave and get out into the, the sunlight and see a natural tree versus an artificial vase? You know, there's so many uh, levels of, of imitation that are present in that in that wonderful image, um, you know, why, like, why are, why are we not concerned with, like, minding our own business and making sure that we're doing the right thing? Why are we always looking outward when we need to look in? And I think you can ask that of, of each of the, you know, participants in that image, um, you know, and they get sort of fooled by language. I mean, they're so excited about winning this game and getting the applause and cheering, you know, these vocal sounds of others that they can't like look down and see themselves and then act on it. And so I don't know, there, there's just, there's so much there about really, like you say, controlling the content that that is available to us and you know um, limiting our access to things that would broaden our horizon and really um, make possible a reimagining in the in the real genuine sense of the term a reimagining of of our world you know because these social engineers these technocrats they talk about a reimagining but they've you know it's their reimagining. It's not a, a one that everyone would participate in. So they're like the guys carrying the vase, you know. They're they're creating the conditions for the game. And when we play their game, um, and we just focus on these narrow, uh, these n- narrow objects or shadows that are presented to our conscious, like and we are competing with each other, then we don't look down at our own bodies, at our own situation, and, you know, we miss out on all of that reality that we have access to. And I don't know, I just, I hope that that this, this corona apocalypse, I hope that it is so blatant, and I hope that it gets so in your face that people are going to have to look down, see their bodies, see the society that we're in, see the manipulation that's going on and recognize that there is so much more that we could have access to if only we would stop focusing on their words, their, uh, you know, communications through media, their talking points. We've got to, we're going to have to do the work of expanding things and 
I don't know. It's looking pretty tough right now, though. Yeah, but I okay. So I I do see that people are waking up to some things. Um, I guess the the negative aspect that I personally see in my view of it is that people are seeing the corruption of the former institutional players. They see the yeah. corruption of the yeah the mega corporations, the state, even organized religion in a lot of ways. Sure. Um, people are seeing these institutions and seeing the hypocrisy, seeing the corruption, seeing even blatant conspiracies behind the scenes. Um, all of these things are becoming obvious. And uh, yes, ideally, people would then seek truth or something that is real, the natural order of things. Uh, but it does seem that this is um, kind of steering people into a more controlled change into a controlled shift into this technocratic um, focus on the social body, you know, woke agenda, whatever aspect you want to look at. It seems like that's where it's shifting, where people are seeing the corruption of the old way and these uh, people that are trying to take a lot of power, you know, even local mayors and governors and such um, through this whole Corona ordeal, the state as a whole, whether mm -hmm. it be Trump or Biden or whoever else. Um, I think people are seeing that there's something wrong there. And I actually just heard a few days ago that in a, a recent poll that they've done for, I think it was for the first time in American history since they've been doing the poll, uh, church attendance is actually lower than 50% in America. Oh, and wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting because in a time of crisis, historically, that has always pushed people to religion. Always. It just always does. And I think we can just logically make sense of that. But in this case, it's not pushing people toward the same religious experience that America has traditionally had. And that would be Christianity. And yeah. um, so instead, I, I don't personally think that it's shifting to just a different, you know, organized religion, so to say. It seems that it's shifting to these religions that you and I have been talking about here, about these things that people don't even see as a religion, but it's filling that religious void. And that's kind of where I see things shifting. And I see a lot of aspects of, yeah, of design of the physical world and of our perception of the physical world. And it kind of seems like there's this designed shift that, uh, say, the powers that be, uh, can tell that, you know, obviously we're not going to pull this same thing over and over and over again with the same level of success. You know, it just, yeah. it, it has to end at some point. You can't, you can't print $3 trillion a month indefinitely. <laughs> like that's not going to work. And so uh, I think it's, it's necessarily, I think it's set up for failure at some point. And the goal, at least from their perspective, let's say the evil perspective, mm -hmm. um, the goal would be to have something set up in its place so that it will give somewhere for people to turn when they see the old system as either not being worth following or it crashes and burns. It really doesn't matter which one. And that you've talked a lot about the, uh, I don't know how to term it, maybe the privatization of education um, mm -hmm. But with things like impact investing and public-private partnerships and pay for success, these types of things, we're, we're seeing that burden of change for the young ones in our society, for educating them and steering them in their lives, 
that's shifting from the state to the corporate realm. Yes. And yeah, it's it's a super interesting shift. Can you can you mention a few examples of how that's going? And um, uh, another interesting aspect of that that that's been highlighted to me is um, the aspect of austerity and the role of austerity and how it correlates to public-private partnerships and all of uh, everything involved with that? Yeah. Um, okay. So, yes. I mean, I, we've had... So, Oklahoma is a really... It's a great concrete example to use for this. So, you know, we're a red state. Um, people here sometimes I've, I've heard people here say that we are the reddest of all the states, you know, um, and that has, you know, that has led to, I mean, not, to, it's not totally that, say it's complicated, but, you know, be, you know, general, in general, conservatives are less likely to, um, approve, uh, tax revenues for the government, right? They're more suspicious yeah. of the government and they are more trusting of in individuals and the private sector. So that, it, that has like created conditions of austerity here. We don't have enough money to fund our education system. Now I say it's complicated because, you know, these, uh, you know, these long-term planners, the social engineers and technocrats who have been trying to set up the, you know, it's a coup d'etat of the U.S. They've been trying to set it up for a hundred years, if not longer. And, you know, they have put people in place that are going to, you know, uh, market these ideas like too conservative. So, Mark, they're going to market ideas that that will eventuate in in conditions of austerity. So it's not just um, you know conservatives like deciding, well, I don't want to vote for taxes, and and then the state doesn't have enough money to pay its entitlements. No, there's a marketing push that that helps to reaffirm or you know to implant that idea in like the GOP party structure, those institutions, things like that. So, uh, you know, when we have a situation that the state can't pay, it can't meet its budgetary requirements, then that is a wonderful opportunity for philanthropic investors or corporate investors in the private sector to come in and say, oh, well, we care about school children. <laughs> and so we will offer to, um, you know, to supply this need, you know, we'll fund the gap. And that makes our, that makes our company look good. It helps our social, uh, our reputation for social responsibility go it trend in the right direction. We're going to give this to you, um, but there are always going to be strings attached, right? And, you know, oftentimes uh, we're going to see these, the development of, of public-private partnerships that are, you know, that 
model of a P3 is really just an intermediary to get the American public to accept a corporate takeover of the, of the U.S. government and, and hmm. the various governments. I mean, you have to you have to sort of move in baby steps so that people do not see the radical nature of the plans behind all of this. And, you know, like I, I said earlier, there is a huge marketing um, industry um, and a behavioral psychology industry that has, uh, that has done tons of research on how human beings think and how Americans think or how, you know, people in other countries think and, you know, how much we'll tolerate. I mean, they, there are trial balloons that are used to judge the climate of opinion and see it, what, what would, what's the farthest that we could go <laughs> without undermining our own project. And you can't just give away all governmental power. People in the United States still believe in a constitution, you know, they still believe in their state constitutions and, and, you know, some people still believe that their vote matters. <laughs> I, I think it, it might. <laughs> somewhat. <laughs> somewhat, you know, I mean, these things are, you know, decided by by higher power for, or higher forces, stronger forces. But you cannot get the, the American public is simply not going to accept a direct transfer of governmental authority to the private sector. So the P3 is a crucial intermediary to gain the trust of, of a busy, distracted, and right now terrorized public. So, you know, you can establish a P3 and, you know, then you have a, I'm going to just talk about philanthropic funders because that's what we're seeing here in Oklahoma. Uh, you have a philanthropic funder who sort of develops a partnership with the government and maybe another uh, NGO, uh, some kind of uh, public or social service provider and the, the funder, the philanthropic funder, the private sector funder will, you know, manage, manage uh, to supply what the conditions of austerity have left wanting. And, you know, he who holds the purse strings, <laughs> you know, really is in uh, the most, is in control. And that even if it if the philanthropic funder is not providing um, the same or more actual funds as like tax revenue based, that doesn't matter. What matters is like the, the incremental uh, donation, like what is it going to take to, you know, actually fund the program? Like, you know, that by controlling that last bit of the spread, then really these private funders gain all the power. And then they also, through the mechanism of performance-based uh, performance contracts or pay-for-success contracts, um, those, 
those types of contracts set up an expectation in the public's eye that, oh, well, there's accountability, there's going to be um, objective measurement of results so that we can verify that, you know, what we're getting from this P3 uh, is, you know, the same or better as what we would get from our government. And so a performance-based contract makes this, uh, the activities of a P3 funded by, a, you know, a private funder, it makes them look like they are consistent with representative government, you know. But really, when we start to dig into how these things work and what they tend to accomplish, we see that 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 language of verifying outcomes is not for the benefit of, you know, uh, the citizens of a state or a city or the country. Rather, the verification of outcomes, that is a data harvest that is going to be very valuable to these, you know, private funders. You know, the private funders, these are very wealthy people or their hedge funds that are in the know about the transition to the digital economy. And they know that data is the new oil. Uh, they knew it a long time ago. They knew that that's where we were headed. So they, they know how to use the data that is harvested from these kinds of programs and they use it to their own advantage. Now, Taxpayers are going to think, oh, well, this helps us to check on the work of these uh, P3 administered programs. Well, it might, but that's not the main thing, right? <laughs> so, you know, even in that example, we're seeing that it is a sort of manipulation of language. It's a manipulation of forms that is designed to, like, dupe people and and really we're getting sucked into it because again like you said we're seeing the corruption in these various institutions and we're seeing the corruption in our local governments and school systems you know you name it and so people are demanding accountability and they're demanding reform and they are demanding objective science. You know, we want to know without bias uh, what is really happening. And, you know, that, you know, the chaos that leads us to demand accountability or the, <clears throat> excuse me, the corruption that we see that demands or that incites us to demand um, transparency those are <clears throat> those are problems that are created in order to get us to demand those things uh, but when we call for things like oh well we want a date we want data driven policy we want evidence-based policy we want results oriented policy to get over the bias to get over the corruption we want transparency to what? To fix, like, you know, problems of collusion and conflicts of interest. Well, we are actually playing right into 
you know, the, the creation of this new institution that is going to have an unprecedented amount of control over our life. So just like you said, they, um, we are, I think people are seeing corruption. They're seeing problems with the old system, but I believe you're right. They're definitely being steered into these, um, you know, these ready prepared solutions. And that is not a church solution. It is not a, um, a solution that goes to, you know, the, the classical idea of philosophy or theory. Um, and it's certainly not, you know, a, you know, a, a traditional, um, you know, uh, faith. Like, it's not, we're not being driven toward the practice of, you know, one of the three uh, traditional monotheistic religions. You know, here, we're not being driven into church. In fact, all the churches have closed their doors. And I mean, not all of them, but many have closed their doors or gone virtual, and they are in it just like everyone else. So, I think, yeah, what we're seeing is the, you know, these forces, these controlling forces, um, they, they're really setting up technology and science as an, uh, and social responsibility and the social ethic of, of caring for others and, you know, um, like embracing the UN SDGs, they're setting that up as a new savior. It's a, it's the new religion. It's the religion that doesn't have any of the faults of the old corrupt religion. I mean, we we're trying to move beyond the era of politics because politics is what it's corrupt. It's messy. Uh, you know, it because it's partisan. Then you're going to have conservatives who create these conditions of austerity it's so this entire thing is yeah I mean I think it is a a game that is controlled to get us into this new religion of communitarianism of uh, you know social justice and and really what you see with like if we examine like the intersection of uh, social impact finance or pay for success finance um, with this larger like theocratic move, you know, if we want to evaluate it in in some of the Voglinian terms that I mentioned earlier, we can say, well, we are when we start using social impact finance to do well, that is make some money by doing good, like engaging in works of what used to be called charity. (laughs) Hmm. Um, We are, again, we're collapsing the divine uh, aspect of reality into the imminent realm. So we're bringing transcendence into the imminent realm. And, and that is, 
I think that isn't that is an ideology. That's the lie, <laughs> you know, because you can't do that. Immanence and transcendence are two different things. And so, you know, this solution of caring for people without an authority telling you to care for them, well, that's just a lie on the face of it because, you know, there is an authority that's telling you that being a good person means doing what? Like respecting the UN SDGs. I mean, you have an authority that's telling you what success is. Pay for success. Okay, what is success? Success is uh, some, you know, when you graduate from high school, you will have a job within six months of graduating. Well, why, who, who got to define that? <laughs> you know, who got to say, yeah, this is, this is what success means. Well, it wasn't the voters, and there, and it wasn't, um, you know, the uh, sacred scripture or a, you know, a faith tradition. Rather, like it goes to this sort of lowest common denominator of, oh well, everybody thinks that it's good to have a job, <laughs> so hmm. we're gonna since we can all we all agree on that. Like the consensus itself is made, you know, it's given this like divine spiritual quality. Oh, yeah. Like we all, everybody wants a job six months out of graduating. We all need work. So it's just posited to us. And, you know, that like, there is no individual agency there. Like that is you being told what success is. You're being told how to get there. You're being told how it's going to be financed. And meanwhile, all around us, you know, as this transfer of, you know, what used to be, um, you know, public authority where we at least have to pretend that, that, representative government works, you know, now we're just sort of moving into the realm that, or the, the new world order that states are totally gone, that they don't matter, that these giant corporations are, you know, they are acting within our best interest and, and really they're going to tell us that we've done it. You know, they're going to say, oh, well, the stakeholders you know, we're looking out for stakeholders and we listen to all stakeholders and we are, we have solicited community opinion. And so they make all of these uh, sort of motions in the direction of, of, you know, representative government, of recognizing our agency to make decisions for ourselves. But it's all a lie because they, they can call a, a community meeting or they can post a survey and take, you know, an assessment of what people would like, but really they're going to do what they want to do. <laughs> and if they tell us, oh, well, this was your idea. Well, that doesn't make it true. So, you know, that's just how, you know, you can test these things and you can say, well, they're telling me that it's my idea, but is it really? And we have to be able to say, 
no, it wasn't. So this is a lie. It's against reason and and we should be questioning. Yeah, but you should just have faith that when the experts <laughs> say it's your idea, of course it's your idea. Trust them. Oh, and especially trust them if we're using blockchain technology to verify, you know, transactions because you know, the blockchain doesn't lie. <laughs> And I will have to break off the interview there. We'll pick up next time in part three and wrap up the rest of the interview. This should give you a little bit of a teaser preview of what we're getting into, and that would be blockchain technology. There is definitely a negative side of that, as well as the positive side that we've talked about before. And so we'll talk about that a little more and continue on with our conversation on all of these subjects in the following episode. So please come back for that. I would like to say thank you to anyone who has left a review or a rating for the podcast. That is much appreciated, as well as those who are financially supporting the show. It seems that a lot of people that had signed up just to hear the Vin Armani interview, the first one in its entirety, ended up sticking around. So, so far, they haven't canceled. So if you've forgotten about that, but you wanted to, you know, go ahead and do that. That's okay. But if you are sticking around because you want to support this content, every dollar that you give goes straight to this podcast. I do not by any means make any profits on this show. You are covering the cost of all of the things that I do here and making sure that this content gets out there in the best ways possible with the support money that I have, at least, plus some of my own. So thank you very much for all of that. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you as a listener and all of the different levels and aspects of your support. So with that, I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.